everyone, and welcome to episode 114 of the Retrospectors podcast, Age of Mythology. My name is Patrick Arthur, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, James Turlings. James, it has been a long time since we have done an RTS game, with the last one being Dawn of War. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I love RTS games. This is one of the genres of my childhood. And the one I have picked is one that I know that you are very, very familiar with. Yeah, we actually normally try to avoid picking games that either of us are super nostalgic about just because we found that it kind of harms the review a bit. Um, but yeah, in this case, I guess you picked the game, but I, like, I gotta be, I gotta be honest here. Like, it's very hard for me to think of criticisms for this game i played through the campaign like four to six times as a kid um like all of the music and the sound effects and the voice lines are like burnt into my brain mm. so i'll do my best to be somewhat you know impartial but there's like zero chance that i can actually do it don't don't even try james i i really am a believer that striving for objectivity or impartiality however you want to put it is a complete waste of time it's far better to present your own personal opinion strongly and just let that stand out there for the world. It makes for more entertaining content anyway. And um, I will take it upon myself to snap you back to the reality every opportunity I get. <laughs> I think there's, yeah, I just, I always feel like there's a little bit of a difference between games you already really like and games that you like because you played them when you were young yeah they're formative experiences right they some of those games they go on to influence exactly what you perceive as good or bad in video games so it's hard to sometimes separate that from your identity uh but you know i don't have the nostalgia so you know my re my review and my perspective will be perfect so there we go all right so skip ahead to one hour and we can <laughs> say it's great <laughs> so age of mythology so this um this is an interesting one so just a little bit of info on why i picked this i, I know that james was you know obviously had a history with this game which was part of it but the other big reason i wanted to pick this is that RTS games kind of belong to different schools. You know, you've got your Commanding Conquers and Red Alerts. You've got the uh, Blizzard lineage of StarCraft and WarCraft, um, with WarCraft 3, you know, being its own style yet again. Um, and then you have this this school, which, uh, which originated with Age of Empires, with Age of Mythology just really being a spin-off of the Age of Empires series. And while I have played Age of Empires as a kid, as I'm sure a lot of people had, I, you know, was mainly messing around in Skirmish and wasn't really... It was never one of my favourite games. Like, uh, the Command and Conquer school was always more what I was accustomed to growing up. So I wanted to go back and do one of these games and Age of Mythology just seemed to have more interesting things going on than Age of Empires. So it seemed like a good opportunity to, uh, to dive in and tackle it. So we're going to be talking a lot about Age of Mythology in this episode, but firstly, let us tell you a little bit about who we are. James and I are the Retrospectors podcast and basically what we do each and every three weeks is we play a classic of the past uh sometimes it's a really popular game sometimes it's a cult classic like uh, gorky 17 with the intention of reviewing it from a modern perspective so we're not here to understand and appreciate games in the context in which they are produced or be accommodating and understanding of technical limitations all we care about is how enjoyable is this game to play today when compared side by side by the many many brilliant games that are released um, this is a bit of an interesting one and doing RTSs is always a bit of an oddball one with this because the RTS genre 
while it has not quite died out, it has it has dramatically fallen off where it used to be. RTS games used to be coming out every single year. Now you'll see one very rarely. And when they do get a release, they're released to a very niche audience. So a lot of the comparison points I have for this episode are actually fairly old RTS games. It's uh, Starcraft 1, Starcraft 2, Warcraft 3, Red Alert 2. Games which in many senses are older than or contemporaries than this game. Because this was, that was kind of the apex of, um, of RTS games with Starcraft 2 in my mind still being the high point in, in a lot of ways as a single player experience. Do you agree with this, James? Have you played many of the modern RTS games? I've played none of them actually, so I, I have guess no we clue. Did, we did Homeworld, but Homeworld was also this same kind of era, early yeah. 2000s. Honestly, the genre never really clicked for me. Like, I like Age of Mythology a lot, um, and I played Rise of Nations back in the day a lot, um, and a few other games like that, but it never really, like, got its grips into me like some other genres. I don't know why. I remember StarCraft Two had a demo. I think I played that when it first came out and then was like, eh. Um, and never really got around to it. So we all you know, played Dota instead, James. That's the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the genre evolved into something superior. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Be very careful what you say, James. I can see people with pitchforks already. <laughs> I mean, c- certainly for most people, they did move towards more multiplayer cooperative <laughs> versions of what RTSs were offering, weren't they, James? But I, I still have a very fond spot for RTS games. Um, I would say Duke Nukem 3D and Red Alert were like the two biggest games I played as a kid. So uh, the genre, I I love to pieces, even if I haven't played this one specifically. Um, So let's talk a little bit about Age of Mythology and what it is. So it's an RTS game developed by Ensemble Studios and first released for PC and Mac in 2002. As I said before, it's a spin-off of the mainline Age of Empires games and developed by the same studio. So Ensemble Studios did all of these games. And Age of Mythology came out between Age of Empires 2 and 3. So today we play, or over the past few weeks, we played the Extended Edition, which is an HD re-release, which also includes the expansion and some new content that they designed just for the game. Uh, We just played through the main campaign of Age of Mythology, and that's going to be the focus of today's discussion. But James has played a little bit of Skirmish. We've also watched one or two multiplayer games, and we'll squeeze in a quick chat about that towards the end. Yeah, and I managed to play through most of the expansion missions today, um, and I've obviously beaten it like several times previously. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, I so... haven't, but I'll, I, I think it is still worth talking about. So I'll let you monologue a bit when we get to that, James. Yeah. Uh, to give you a very broad overview, I just wanted to talk a little bit, and we will get into more of this later, uh, about what characterizes Age of Mythology compared to other RTS games. Um, is it the mythology? <laughs> the mythology is is an important part of it, but I don't think it's actually the most important part. Um, to me, the thing that characterizes Age of Empires and Age of Mythology is their economic models, uh, their economy and the resource gathering they have, which is that you gather a wider range of resources and you gather those resources in a more diverse way than in other RTS games and resources run out in a way that isn't in a way that's a bit dissimilar from other games. So you have food that you gather that you can either get from collecting things from bushes, killing animals or building farms 
You have gold, which you get from gold mines, often which have a limited bank. You have wood, which you get from cutting down trees. And when you cut down trees, those trees disappear. And perhaps the most unique thing about Asian mythology is you have faith as a resource, uh, which you can spend on myth units and which each of the different factions generate in different ways. It's also a population cap game uh, closer to... Uh, Warcraft 3 and Starcraft in that way whereas games like Riddler do not have a population cap you can keep building units as long as you know your game doesn't crash from having too many units on the screen you have a finite number of units in Age of Mythology uh, with different units using up a different percentage of your unit cap the second thing which I think characterizes these games is the way that you progress through ages so Teching is a thing in all RTS games, whether it's, a, you know, making your main building more advanced so you can build other things, or simply buildings being prerequisites for other buildings. But Age of Empires and Age of Mythology flavor this teching with you it being you needing to advance to the next technological age, which then gives you more technologically advanced units. So you'll go from using bronze weapons to iron weapons to steel weapons. And it's a little bit different in Age of Mythology, but that's still the core of advancing and teching an age. And you always get that nice uh, feeling when you go up an age and all of your and you get access to the next tier of units and you upgrade them. They all convert to the fancier looking stronger units. Age of Mythology specifically has the mythology, which uh, James alluded to earlier. Yeah, and I'm surprised you said that that wasn't the the main draw of you for this game. To me, it's like. You know, the main thing about the game is being able to create minotaurs and gorgons and use god powers and throw meteors down on your enemy. That was always, like, as a kid, that was the thing that got me riled up um, about playing this. None of this economy crap. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting. I Listen, I think you raise an interesting point. From the outside, I definitely do think this is the thing which seems to be what Age of Mythology is all about. And definitely when I picked it, I thought that this would be a more, I don't know, central focus of the gameplay in the same way that Heroes is such a central focus of the gameplay in Warcraft 3. But yep. I think comparing, I think in a lot of ways, the myth units are your mega units. And while the powers are really strong, them being one use only does reduce that impact for me in single player obviously in multiplayer they're insanely strong and game winning if used in the right way but in terms of them being non-reusable it does limit the degree to which you use them i think and once again we will get into more of this the nitty-gritty of how this game actually operates later but definitely age of mythology standout thing is all of the mythology and the different god powers and upgrades you get unique to each gods so that's the basic setup uh, and but uh i just don't want to spend too much time just explaining this game to death we'll be going over all the all these different aspects of the game in more detail um just divide it up a bit more neatly so i think the place i want to start a discussion is the story james okay so in this game you take control of an atlantean named arkantos of course the atlanteans are real in the world of age of mythology uh they're the probably the least outlandish thing you're going to run into and uh just worth noting they later are their own faction in the expansion but in the main campaign the atlanteans still use the greek 
uh, technology tree, and they do belong to the Greek faction. What happens to Arkantos is that he endures some pirate attacks before going off to help King Agamemnon with the Trojan War. Things soon spiral out of control as the source of the pirates ends up being a cyclops named Gargarensis. And Gargarensis has a far more devious and involved plan than just a few pirate raids. Um, over the course of the campaign, you team up with other heroes, you team up with other factions and players, all three factions, to try and stop the evil Gargarensis from realizing his plan. Um, that's the absolute basic setup. I'm going to hand it over to you, James, because I've been speaking for a very long time here. Tell us a little bit about what you think of the story of Age of Mythology. Yeah, so as I said, I'm very biased towards this game. Um, I would say that, you know, on reflection and going through it again, um, I think that one thing that this narrative does really well um, is generally the way it incorporates its narrative into the missions. Generally, you won't be getting fed too much of the story through cutscenes like there's maybe like 10 to 15 seconds at the start and end of each mission, and then most of that delivery is coming through the actual missions themselves, uh, with multiple kinds of objectives popping up through the missions, and, you know, kind of what you're doing, you know, like changing kind of drastically depending on what's happening in the story. Um, as you said, you kind of, at near the beginning of the story, it, starts a it sort of kicks off with the Battle of Troy, um, and you do a bunch of fairly standard military missions at the beginning um, until, as a desperation attempt, they decide to build the Trojan horse. Um, and then you get like a mission that, you know, involves gathering lots of wood and actually building the horse while fighting off scouts who are trying to find it. Um, there's all sorts of missions like this that really incorporate the narrative into what's happening. Um, I think, you know, this game does it a lot better than Dawn of War when we did that. Probably not as well as something like Warcraft 3, but it is, you know, to me, closer than any other RTS I've played to that kind of level. I think the the actual, like, the characters themselves are not very, like, deep or have very complex motivations. They're very simple characters who have understandable motivations, but not a whole lot going on, you know, beyond that. But I think the narrative does a good job of not having these characters constantly hog the limelight. Like, they are very to the point with their dialogue. Um, so, you know, and the voice acting is generally good. So it's it's hard for me to tell whether, you know, I just like the characters because I do. Or, you know, I don't think that I don't actually think they're particularly well written or anything. But I still find myself liking them despite that. So basically, um, on your first broad point, I completely agree with you. I, I think what you're getting at is you think that the campaign does a really good job uh, contextualizing the missions, and the missions do a good job contextualizing the campaign. Like, what you're doing in the missions is very reflective of what the story says you should be doing. Um, yes. And I think that in that sense, it's very immersive. Definitely while I was playing it through, at no point was I like, this doesn't make any sense what I'm doing. There's always a very direct connection with what you're actually doing in the mission versus what the story demands that you're doing. And I actually think this is a really important thing. Way back when we did Red Alert 2 in mission, in mission, in episode 5, I'm thinking of everything in terms of missions since playing this game, in episode 5, I pointed out that RTS games don't make any fucking sense. Like, it doesn't make any sense that you're, you know, that 
building warriors take food and they you build a building and then they pop out within three seconds it's a very abstracted take on strategy and tactics uh it doesn't actually make any real sense as to how battles or wars actually go and i think that you need the context of a story for you to kind of forget about all that abstraction and i think age of mythology does a great job doing that um i'm much lower on the actual story than you are james while i agree that it is a competently told story and while i think that you're right that the voice acting is pretty good i think the main problem with the story is that it's just boring you're basically chasing gargarensis across you know multiple regions and you're just chasing him and chasing him and chasing him and i think that something that video games in general have done better since age of mythology came out is they've done a better job bringing specifically Greek mythology, but mythology in general to life a lot better. Um, around the same time I was playing this, I was playing through Hades for the playthrough podcast. And Hades injects so much personality into its uh, mm. gods and goddesses that it's hard for it to even compare. Even something like God of War, which came out, I think the first one came out at a similar time to this, about 2004. I think injected the gods and you know Kratos with a lot more personality than that are in this game. It ends up being for me a pretty bland and boring, if competently told, adventure. So I didn't find it very compelling, but I, I didn't think it was bad. Like it wasn't embarrassing by any stretch. It just wasn't particularly interesting. Yeah, I think the best character moment is honestly the first time they introduce Gargarensis and he's like standing on top of that hill, like mm -hmm. with you know, reciting poetry and that kind of thing. It kind of gives him this mysterious vibe, which they never really leveraged that again through the rest of the story. I felt like they could have done a better job characterizing the villain. Like there's nothing to him as a character at all. He kind of um, turns into generic villain overlord yelling at his underlings, doesn't he? Yeah, and you really need to make your villain memorable and like really menacing kind of. They basically, his underlings were not menacing at all. They all seemed fairly incompetent um you know there was a bit in the norse campaign where they kind of pull a fast one on you but it's still like nothing special and i think uh there's no like sense of intrigue or you know anything like that happening i felt like the most interesting part of the story was honestly when they were doing the battle of troy and then everything else is pretty abstract yeah, the the other thing is, we're going to be comparing this to Warcraft 3 a fair bit, but one of the things that's interesting about Warcraft 3, is, and one of the reasons I think the villains in those games are so compelling, is that they win, or they at very least initially win and are crushing you in various different ways. With the final mission of the main campaign, you know, being a desperate last stand against an overwhelming force that you've just been desperately retreating from and losing against again and again. Um in this game you just repeatedly crush your enemies yeah mission after mission after mission after mission and they just keep you know their forces keep expanding and it keeps getting harder and you keep winning and winning and winning like gargarensis doesn't get a single win in in pretty much the entire campaign and i think that that does a lot to make him feel less threatening because if you've beaten him 29 times why wouldn't you be able to beat him the 30th time I'm kind of on the same page as you, honestly. Like, the plot itself isn't anything amazing. It works well enough as a vessel to keep you moving between the factions. Um, but the real, like, you know, the good chunks of the narrative are, you know, the in-mission, uh, you know, the ways the mission is tied to the gameplay. And listen, that's a fair point worth raising, right? Like, what we're criticizing at the moment is the overall plot. But I think it's worth drawing attention to the 
story of each mission. And I do think that the stories of each mission uh, can be can be pretty damn good, actually. Like, uh, yeah. even something as simple as here's this giant tree with a piece of piece of Osiris inside. You have to cut down this tree to get the piece of Osiris. Okay, like that's like an interesting narrative quirk to um, that is kind of pushing me in a different direction from just building up an army and killing the enemy base. So I do think that while the broader plot isn't great, the the goals that you're given in the individual missions are actually pretty good from a story perspective. One of the ones I really liked um, was one of the first Egypt missions, which was there is this gigantic army advancing through your like allies' neighborhoods and they're going to crush you know the main base in about 20 minutes. And you have to build up your forces and like rush to the end in order to you know stave them off with a fairly powerful upgrade yeah you have to get the big colossus thing right yeah the guardian of anubis i think um and he just like wrecks the army but that was like a really good mission hook um the dwarven forge was one of my favorite missions where you needed to there was basically like a cave system that you couldn't build inside that you needed to build up a big base outside and then send forces in um, and then upon reaching the center, need to do like a wave defense kind of thing in order to win. That mission was hard, but it was like, narratively, it was awesome. And the levels are generally filled with lots of things to find in them. Like someone pointed out to me that the game doesn't necessarily push you towards finding these things, but the levels do generally have lots of stuff if you go looking for them like hidden around the place Mm -hmm. it's always worth looking over the hills i was going to talk about later but it's worth bringing it up now you say that there are always there's a lot of things to find so i found that to be true there were usually two to three things on each mission to find but i found a lot of the time that the things you found were kind of not that great and uh i just want to talk about relics Relics okay. to me in this game seem piss weak, like like annoyingly weak. They provide very, very, very minor benefits. A lot of the time I'd find one and be like, I'm not even interested in really building that unit type, so I wouldn't even bother going to pick it up and bring it to my base. I was disappointed with these relics. Uh, did you feel differently? Because a lot of the time I would find them in a secret and I just wouldn't give a shit. And I think this is distinct from Warcraft 3 where most of the cool stuff you would find in the missions would be upgrades for your hero and even something like a health potion or a mana potion was at least usable and useful uh Mm. a lot of the time i'd find shit i wouldn't even care so i was a bit disappointed in this aspect of the game yeah i think there's a lot of bad relics there are definitely some really powerful ones like i was playing through one of the missions in the expansion today where you basically need to get line of sight to these three hilltops so you can kind of teleport some temples using Cronus's god power on top of these hills. And the map is split into three completely separate areas that you can only get between by using a god power to teleport your army between. Mm-hmm. Like there's like mountain ranges, you cannot pass them any other way. Um, and I actually found a re- that relic that spawns Pegasi at your temple whenever they die. So I was able to like beat the mission without leaving the starting area because I just fly the Pegasus to and the you get hilltops. The line of sight, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was 
really funny. Oh, that's um, quite there's, cool. there's some good ones. Like, I find the cavalry speed upgrade. I think a lot of these are probably, like, way better in multiplayer than they are in the single player. Because things like unit speed is, like, insanely powerful in PvP. And it's, mm. like, in the PvP, normally when I send my army in, it's because I have overwhelming numbers. And at that point, these minor upgrades don't matter. Mm -hmm. In, like, a balanced PvP scenario, when you have, like, five spearmen versus five spearmen, like, one relic can really tip the balance. So I think I understand, because these relics appear in multiplayer too, so... Mm. I kind of understand them keeping the power level down, but it does, like, drag down the single-player experience a little bit when most of the time um, the things you're finding aren't super interesting. Yeah, and, I mean, the other game I'd compare it to is StarCraft 2, because StarCraft 2 has optional objectives and, and other things to find. I mean, even if there were more, like, hidden resources, more hidden units, because uh, whatever it gives you, like, that mission early on where you need to stop the first uh, battering ram open things opening things up you find three oh, yeah. medusas and those three medusas are just like very powerful and very influential and i guess that's what i wanted more of i wanted more impactful discoveries discovery for the sake of discovery for me is less interesting than it actually giving me a toy to play with so i think they could have done a lot more in this respect even if they were giving you you know units you don't normally get access to or could access just to let you play around with something a little did you explore so let's go back to the dwarven mine mission did you explore that level much no uh, i didn't like okay uh did you notice the river i think so yes so on the left at the starting area, there's a river. And if you go up the river, it goes into the cave system and there's some like fairly powerful myth units sitting in the water you have to kill. Mm -hmm. If you manage to like destroy them, you can get onto this little beach that opens up onto um, a settlement that has a healing spring like sitting on top of it. Um, and it's like right next to the main objective. So if you like immediately go that path, you can like set up a base in a really easy area to defend. Because that mission, there's a lot of like scary shit to defend. Like the enemy sends like so many fire giants at you. Um, you know, like that is a hidden alternate route to victory. I thought was really cool. That is cool, and that's fair enough. The, I, and I don't want to say it never does it. Um, it's just yeah, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't as excited by this as um as I was perhaps hoping. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the things you find aren't necessarily super flashy most of the time. Although I will say, when I was doing the Atlantean missions, like I think they were probably hitting that point where you would think they were enjoyable. Like there's so much stuff. So maybe this is something they've realized from the first game and taken yeah. into account for the expansion. Because I I haven't yeah. played the expansion. Yeah, I think yeah. so. It seemed a lot better to me in that regard. Um, so James, I wanted there's a few things I want to talk about here, but I think that the place to start, what to me is the core of this game is the economy. Economy. Um, sure. you happy to jump into the economy of RTS games for me? <laughs> yeah, do we want to talk about generally or cuz I when I was playing this game, I realized that I have a lot of grievances with the way economies are set up in this like genre as a whole. Um, okay, actually. let's okay, let's talk about the problem with RTS economies as a whole. That sounds like a like a thesis statement. Yeah, so I kind of want to talk about this because the I've got a lot of problems that I didn't really 
cotton on to you know the last few times we played one of these genres um basically in my head i think there's like this big disconnect between what i want out of the genre thematically and what the actual experience of playing an rts is like mm -hmm. when i think about rts as a genre i think about micromanaging large armies fighting each other I think about uh, attacking resources, I think about unit composition, big battles, you know, that kind of thing. I do not think about the first, like, four to eight minutes of every mission as being, you know, this game where I just build villages and put them, you know, put them on farms and put them on mines and put them on logs, you know, um, and just trying to do that as fast as I can. And like, for example, I was watching some multiplayer games recently, and basically every multiplayer match that I watch begins with like four to six minutes of both players playing single player inside their base before they can actually start playing the game that like, you know, what I consider RTS to be is there's these battles between units. Um, and I kind of took me a while to come to grips with this and accept that that's part of the game. See, because when I used to play this game as a child, I obviously had no idea how to play RTS properly. So I would build like four villages or something. Whereas now I would build like 30 villages, you know? It's, it's funny because we were actually talking about this uh, in general, about our different approaches. And I think it's a couple of things. The first is that our understanding of how to play RTS games has evolved so much from be the beginning era. Like, they're yeah. set up in such a way that it is insane to not prioritize your economy early on uh, because if you prioritize your economy early on, you get a bigger payoff later, right? Uh, yep. So back in the day, maybe when they released Age of Mythology, the people who made this game weren't expert RTS players. I, I, don't, I don't quite believe that because I'm sure by then all these people had played StarCraft 1 and the even older games to understand the importance of the economy. The but other Age of Empires games, right? <laughs> duh. So, of course, I understood the importance of the economy. The other thing, James, is I think this just might be a feature of the genre in some way, uh, to some degree. Like, I do think that part of RTS games need a initial build-up. The point isn't to start with an army and start fighting the point is to build up your economy to do different builds that that basically cut off your economy at different stages to build different units. The, the resource managers is a core component. Do you think that the problem is less of a genre problem and more of an execution problem? Like, can you it accept that, that, that it's okay to have some of this and perhaps Age of Mythology just has too much of a focus on resource gathering in the early game? I really wish there was a upper limit on the number of villages you could build. Like, I just kept feeling like, okay, I've done the economy bit, I want to focus on the fun bit, but you keep having to, like, drag your attention back to the, like, bookkeeping. I think it might be a problem, like, that's compounded in this game specifically. You were telling me that StarCraft 2 kind of starts you off with more workers to kind of you know, speed up this process because, yes. you know, I'm a fairly slow player um, compared to those online players that I was watching. And like, I did some practice in skirmish mode and I was able to, you know, do some openers pretty quickly, um, but not as fast as or as efficient as they could. 
Um, and then after I'd done that a bit and went back to playing the single player, started finding the missions pretty easy because I could just ramp my economy up so much faster than I could before I did that research. Yeah, um, Star StarCraft 2 didn't have that change initially, but they basically responded to the criticism that games were taking too long to come off the ground. So you started with more workers so that you could get into... So the economy, I guess, got kick-started faster. But they didn't remove the economy. They just gave it a bit of a, a kick so that they, it could build up faster. Um, I don't think reducing the number of villages is a solution, though, because then you just cap uh, both sides' production, and then both sides just max out, and they both have static production. One of the interesting things about RTS games is that you have different strategies where sides can focus on economies or units to different degrees and one can be a more late game strat and one can be more of an early game strat. i think you just cap it per settlement right so you you could go for a fast expand if you wanted more villages so you have you're a bigger economy but I, you're I, more vulnerable yeah you're still but you can still do that and you're just restricting the way in which people can express themselves and build their economy i think from what you're describing it sounds like you don't enjoy the economy management of rts games which to me is 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 a fair is a fair point of view like i know a lot of people don't like this but a lot of people do myself included and i would say the macro economic management making sure you have enough buildings that can produce units making sure you have the right number of people on each resource deciding the optimal time to get different upgrades um, making sure that you are building the right unit composition and executing on it correctly is actually a fun core component of the game and a reason that I enjoy RTS games. If we diminish or remove this, we're taking, to me, it's diminishing the game. It's not actually improving it. Yeah, and I can see, I respect that. Um, and I actually think it's okay in multiplayer to some degree because you're kind of racing against your opponent. Um, in single player, I think it's a huge problem because, like I said, after I practiced build openers for, uh, you know, like six or seven tries or something, I started like crushing the game like super mm -hmm. easily. Like this genre, this was especially apparent when we did Dawn of War, but like this thing happens where you can just get so many units out before the AI that it kind of takes away from the moment-to-moment -moment micro strategy of the battles because you basically just have, like, I have 50 units and he has 10. Like, you just, like, drag, select, and move in a direction and that, you know, you're done. So basically your problem isn't with the macro because the, the next point I was going to ask is that what is it that makes this distinct from Emperor Rise of the Middle Kingdom or Rollercoaster Tycoon? Because those are strategy games. I mean, they're management games, but they're, they've got this big focus on economic management and tweaking all these levers and making sure there aren't, I guess, problems with the chain of your economy. You know, you don't have shortages of resources at key times. You could say it's got a lot in similar RTS games. Why is it that those games are fine and fun and enjoyable as an economic management thing but when you play an rts it's suddenly a turn off i think it's expectation is the issue like my expectation is that i'm going to be choosing different units and sending them into battle and then microing mm. them and fighting them and i only get to do that for like 10 percent of each mission basically and it's less important and i think that's what you're leaning into right it's like the economic puzzle here is too easily solved yeah like how do I put this? Um, if we played a racing game 
and you spent 90% of the time in a menu and like 10% of the time racing, like to me, that's a like a flawed racing game. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the reason I play this game is like for the, you know, for the big, like controlling lots of units at once around the, the army fights. Yeah. And like, not even just that, like, I don't mind the, I wouldn't mind the economy issue so much if it was more interactive with your opponents at the beginning. I really dislike how you just sit in your base for like six minutes when there's Mm. this whole map to explore, right? Like I want the start of the game to be, I send out some scouts, I locate, you know, what my opponent's doing. I try to find the resources. I send units to those resources out on the map. But the game kind of starts you with your resources like in your base. So basically every game starts exactly the same, like regardless of, you know, maybe like I've watched some different multiplayer matches where um, on some maps there's no like hunt or like good farms. So you have to go fishing or stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that changes build orders. But there's not enough interaction with your opponent early on, I think. Um, which yeah. is the thing that kind of gets like annoys me the most. If it was like still uh, there was still a huge focus on economy, but it was a big tug of war. Like one of the things I really like about playing Dota at the start of the match is that you're both trying to like get resources to make your character stronger, but it's a very back and forth interaction. Mm. This here is just single player. It also doesn't change, right? I, I think that's the other thing that's really important. When you, you're you not really doing different build orders, almost always you're focusing on food early on because food lets you build more villages. Oh, yeah, and early you, you on literally you memorize, like, I put two on food, I put one on wood, I put one on gold. Uh, I right? didn't memorize like... it to that degree. I was being a lot more ad-lib. But, I mean, you don't need to be that, that, that focused as long as you just build 30 villages and throw them out in a decent Sorry, ratio. In, in multiplayer, you have to play Oh, like in multiplayer, that. In single yeah, sure. player, I didn't, like, I forgot, like, I the one I practiced, I forgot, like, instantly, but, like, you the general principles, yeah, helped me a lot. Uh, so we're going to continue this discussion, actually, but uh, we're going to have a music break first because I think that uh, we've been, you know, talking for a while. We always have a music break around this time. James, what did you think of the music? It's really fucking good, um, and I don't think it's just nostalgia this time. Um, uh, the music is really awesome. They make use of a lot of cool, like, era-specific instruments, and they really sell each of the factions' themes. I think basically every song on this soundtrack is awesome, and they all, I didn't realize this until I looked them up today, have the stupidest names, like, I've ever heard. Like, the main, like, epic theme is called A Cat Named Mittens. (laughs) I feel like the composer just, like, randomly picked the names. They just have nothing to do with the songs. It's great. Um, This soundtrack is awesome. I actually think this is the best soundtrack I've listened to this year. Uh, Not only is every individual song excellent, they're all extremely memorable. When I was listening back to all of them... Loved every single one and could remember every single one and the flow of the music. I think one of the key things here is that the music's very chill. It's very laid back and gentle and relaxing. And this kind of alludes a little bit to what we were talking about before. Most of the time when you're playing this game, you're not actually battling the enemy. 
You're not yeah. getting in massive fights. What you're doing is you're building up your economy and you're building up your pace and you're building up your forces. And a gentler, more relaxed soundtrack is not only easy on the ears and doesn't feel as repetitive, even after listening to it for a long time, I think it's also just generally more suited to the pace of gameplay. Like, Age of Mythology is not a crazy fast-paced RTS like StarCraft 1, where you run your forces into theirs and the both armies die in five seconds it tends to be a lot more skirmishy with fights being a lot more drawn out. And you just spend a lot more time gathering resources, building buildings, and so on and so forth. So not only is the music fantastic in its own right, it feels like such a perfect fit to the pace of gameplay um, that, I don't know, I've fallen in love with it. Yeah, this is this is an, a superb soundtrack, one of the best we've done for the show, in my opinion. So yeah, definitely not nostalgia talking. Did you have a song that you thought was particularly good? Honestly, when I was going through them, like, it was really hard to pick one. Um, they were just all, like, e it's surprising when you get a really good soundtrack that's just so consistent mm -hmm. and that, like, every single song is, like, just as good as each other song on the track. Um, like you, it's very hard to pick one out. They're all very good. Um, I end up going for Hoping for Real Betterness, which unfortunately is one of the less wacky uh, song names, but um, I think this is an excellent one. Uh, but, you know, I could have picked one at random and I would have been very satisfied with my choice. Personally, I like the tracks called Eat Your Potatoes, um, <laughs> Flavor Cats, uh, Adult Swim, Behold the Great Science Fi. Yeah, who knows? What were they thinking? So, someone, someone was having a funny joke. Yeah, I think it's great. Anyway, this is Hoping for Real Betterness.
Alrighty, so let's return to discussion about the gameplay of Age of Mythology. Patrick, where did we leave off? Alrighty, so I wanted to talk more about uh, some potential solutions for the problem you've posited, which is that at the start of the game of Age of Mythology, you basically focus exclusively on your economy, you build that up, and you have to do that every single game. And it makes it repetitive and boring because there's not really much gameplay once you understand you need to build a lot of villages and send them out before you can start the real game. And here I would point to yet again what I still think is the highlight of the RTS genre that has not been eclipsed, unfortunately, in my mind, and that's StarCraft 2. So what StarCraft 2 does is that it places... It does two things, I guess. The first is that every mission has alternate bonus objectives which get you a meta resource which powers up your forces overall so you have your main objective that you need to complete and then you have an alternate objective that is harder to also do in addition to the main objective that's going to use more of your resources and time to deal with the second thing starcraft does really well is it places pressures on the player in um in more interesting ways so, for example, early on, there's a mission where you have to destroy a train that's going across train tracks, and you have to ambush it and destroy it before it reaches the end. And over the course of the mission, the train will get additional escorts, um, they'll build bunkers to protect it, and then eventually the train speeds up and goes faster. So every step along the way, you're being taken off guard and by surprise as it powers up and make things, makes things more difficult for you than simply you building up your forces. So James, the, I guess the thing I'd ask you is that, do you think that there are missions that do put pressure on the player in Age of Mythology in this way that solve this problem? Um, or do you think that Age of Mythology like fails to do this and every mission ends up being exactly the same? No, I think the missions end up being fairly varied um, and it kind of can alleviate this problem sometimes. I think that mission we mentioned with the advancing army is a good one. Uh, Sorry, just to, just to like explain, the thing about the advancing army thing is that the army will destroy the enemy base in 20 minutes. So whereas before in a normal mission you might have unlimited time to build up a full max army to just wipe the enemy out at your leisure, now you're on a clock and you need to get things done before that time limit expires or you lose the mission. Yeah, and then you've got other missions like uh, no base, no build missions, which generally I think this game does fairly poorly most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, there's missions that involve capturing the carts for the Osiris pieces. Um, there was the one in the city where the cart keeps getting moved through the city where I absolutely sped as fast as i can so that i would grab the cart before it was moved or sorry there's a bunch of missions where the resources on the map are so limited that i opted not to get the gathering improvements because they wasted like i could have spent that on units instead and it's kind of deducting from the max resources that's available on the map um i think the mission structure does a fairly good job of alleviating this issue what about just getting attacked like uh, having to deal with overwhelming attacks. Yeah, I agree. The missions where raiding was quite prominent were good in that regard as well. I do think that the AI is a bit abusable uh, with the way walls and towers work, um, because basically mm. if you make a ring around your base but leave a gap, 
the enemy will basically never attack the wall and they will always funnel through that little gap instead. So you can kind of build these like trench mazes filled with towers Tower on our, either side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then once you've got that in place, you can just like K your economy for as long as you need to have enough critical mass to like roll over the mission. Yeah, so for me, I, I, um, I definitely, there were a few missions I struggled with. Generally, when I started a new faction, when I first started Egypt, um, I got run over a bit. When I first started the Norse, that first mission, it probably took me so it probably took me three or four tries uh, yeah. because not only do they attack you with a lot of myth units they also it, there's this time they use a power to summon a bunch of wolves i think they killed like every single one of my villagers it was me too it was that so, happened to me yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah. so uh, those missions are uh, and the, the idea is that if you want to go pure economy you should be punished for it and that's what happens in multiplayer games a lot of the time in a multiplayer game, you can't just build 30 workers. Well, maybe you can in Age of Mythology. I'm not really familiar with the competitive scene. But theoretically, uh, in StarCraft and other RTS games, if you focus too much on building your economy and get greedy and don't build enough military units, they can show up with a timing attack and run you over before you get the payoffs for that economy. Um that's how it felt a little bit in this game when I was unfamiliar with the factions because I wasn't, you know, very smoothly pumping out units or, you know, sending people to the right areas or anything. And that was a way to keep my greediness in check, essentially my lack of efficiency. Uh, do you think there's something to be said that you are learning how to be efficient economically over the course of the campaign and that you should be, I guess, rewarded uh, when you master this, or do you think it's just too easy to learn build orders and overcome this problem? Um, I do think that's a part of it. I think, like, by the time I'd gotten good enough to progress to Titan difficulty on most of the missions, um, and then I, again, like, even on Titan, was starting to hit this point where I could out-economy the AI pretty, you know, efficiently. Mm -hmm. Um, once you hit that point and there's no more difficulties to bump up to, each mission sort of becomes a bit, like, easy, I think. Mm -hmm. um, becomes the same. All the, yeah, whereas, like, when it's really challenging because you're really inefficient, it can feel really fun and, like, really rewarding to push through. Um, honestly, I think there's, like, a bunch of missions in the game that are significantly harder than the rest, and I really liked all of them. I think uh, I was actually expecting to be disappointed by the challenge in this game, but it kind of like proved me wrong a few times um, and like made me have to reevaluate the way I was playing the game. So I'm a bit low on the economy aspect of RTS as a genre, but like honestly, I had fun learning those build orders in skirmish mode and eventually getting good at it in single player. So it's kind of like once I'd fixed my expectation, it wasn't so bad. Um, and I kind of started to like it at some points, but it never really, you know, won me over fully, I think. It's very funny because for me, this is my favorite part of the entire game, the economy uh because it's i guess it's the thing that for me mainly distinguishes this game from other rts games i've played the complexity of the economy the way that you have a lot more resources to manage 
Um, I, guess, I like the way food works, basically. Yeah, um, you've got food. You have to be sending people to gold. And eventually, there's even a get-out-of-jail card with the marketplace. I utilize the marketplace a lot. I don't know if you did, James. But definitely, yes. the idea with the marketplace is it lets you convert resources from one type to another. So if you have excess of a lot of resource, you can just convert it to another. And it's like just this wonderful way to make it less punishing if you screw up your economy. It's a fairly, I think it's a tier three structure. So you, you don't get it early There's on. There's still an upper limit though, because every time you buy, the cost goes up. Sure. So eventually the costs become so crazy that like... But but it's, it's not there to fix your economy. It's just there to bridge you if you screw it up a bit. And it's easy enough to transfer people cutting wood to a gold mine, right? Like, it's not and it's just there to keep you alive in that short period so i agree it's not uh, there was a couple of maps where i had to transition to a full-on like farm donkey caravan trade market economy <laughs> you can actually like completely clear the map of resources like every tree every mine like you know all the fishing spots and then you're kind of in this position where you need to generate gold and food with those slow but infinite resources it's kind of interesting but yeah i i just want to say this part of the game i really liked i i listen i do think the um criticism you raised around the economy being kind of repetitive is actually a very valid one um and it's something that i agree with completely i think that the game has a big lull in the middle basically the the egyptian missions uh which is roughly in the middle of the game once you've done the first couple which are kind of interesting they settle into a very repetitive base building pattern. Yeah, it's because the faction, like as a whole, is very like late game focused. Mm -hmm. So the early game is very, very samey across all the missions once you've done it a few times. Yeah, the um with the Egyptians, their end game units, their chariot archers, their elephants, um, are so much better than their regular units that I felt I was stupid trying to do anything other than just go for those late game units. So the early game was all just pure economy focused. I would get my MIG dolls up and then I'd spit out thousands of chariot archers supported by some myth units and heroes and I would kill the enemy. Let's talk about the factions actually because this is one of my favorite parts of the game. Absolutely, um, yeah. Let's go. Is the faction diversity. It's not as mechanically diverse between factions as something like Warcraft um, 3. Warcraft 3, but I... But I do think, because basically you've got your Greeks, um, your Egyptians, your Norse, uh, Atlanteans, and then Chinese more recently, actually, in the last few years. And each, you know, each faction has three major gods. So Greece has Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. And each of these major gods has uh, two minor gods that they can pick from on each age. You know, so when you advance from the ancient, to the classic age or whatever you pick between two uh and each minor god has its own you know powers and upgrades and units and you know associated with it so i actually think basically all of the like 12 base major gods play fairly differently from one another even within like within greece like you know hades is very late game focused you can do a lot of cool raiding things with poseidon zeus is a very balanced god to play as um and then like from from the norse perspective odin has crazy scouting because he gets ravens um whereas loki is a very you know heavy rush down character 
Kronos um, is a character who has the ability to teleport his buildings across the map. So I saw online that a common tactic that works on low ladder is that you build a temple and immediately teleport it next to the enemy base. Um, stuff like that. Uh, I think specifically in multiplayer, all of the gods are really quite diverse, actually, when it comes to their timings and their pushes and the units they want to build and how they want to play. It's really cool. Although in single player, I would say those distinct, those differences are less yeah, pronounced and less important. Yeah, it's way less present, right? Because right? oh, it's less important as well. You don't need those small edges. The AI doesn't use real life tactics, so you can't really strategize against them. Like you haven't learned matchups or anything. Build paths are less important. Timings are way less important. Mm -hmm. Like basically every single map other than those ones that are super pressuring you, like you're going to, you know, build up to myth age and then pump out the best myth units and some, you know, infantry to support them and then roll over the enemy. Oh. It's less, you know, like, whereas in multiplayer, the Norse characters really want to build up to frost giants and then like, you know, have a bit of fun with them. I, um, I do think that the faction diversity between the three factions is worth highlighting, though, um, particularly in comparison to Age of Empires, where, listen, I'm, I haven't played a lot of it. I haven't played any Age of Empires 2. I've played a bit of Age of Empires 1. But certainly there is way more difference in the factions in Age of Mythology than Age of Empires, um, both in, in the ways that you gather resources, in the ways in which you generate faith, in the kinds of units you have with, you know, the Egyptians having, you know, cavalry and elephants. They have counter units early on, but not generically good units. The Norse have, um, I guess, they tend to have less units, but they tend to be stronger. You know, their axemen are the one that build buildings. Yep. Um, it's not quite on the level of Warcraft or Warcraft 3 or Starcraft 1 or 2, but there's enough going on here that every time I was playing a new faction, it was fun and interesting to explore what that faction was about and the kind of units they had. Uh, the different myth units are another big point of diversity, right? With them all being very different from one another in terms of their special abilities. And oh, I love design. them. Yeah. They're all super fun. My favorite is the Hydra, like that grows heads every time it gets a kill and then becomes this building destroying monster. I know it's not actually very good in multi, but um, like I just love building it when I'm playing Greece, like every single time. Colossi are also like really slow and powerful. I like Minotaurs as a and Cyclops as like a you build like one or two of them uh, and a bunch of archers and they sit there throwing things around the place while your archers whittle them down. Uh, frost giants freezing things. Fire Giants being weird in that they're a ranged unit that does hack damage, so they like shred through archers and stuff like that. I think it's really cool. Um, actually, no, my favorite unit is the fucking crocodile with the sun disc on its head that shoots lasers. <laughs> lasers. Yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> do you want to talk a bit about the the combat here, James? Because I think this is one part of the game where you and I may have different opinions. Okay, sure. So the combat in Age of Mythology is probably my least favorite part of the game. Um, now, I'm not really going to comment on multiplayer here because I understand high-level competitive multiplayer is basically a completely different game. So I understand that micro is a crazy important part of any RTS and definitely the high-level competitive Age of Mythology. 
Um, my experience with the combat in this game is that it's kind of bland and uninteresting. Uh, units have very high HP pools relative to the damage they deal, so units take a lot of hits before they go down. Obviously, if you're using the correct unit against the correct enemy unit, they go down faster, but it still takes quite a while compared to Red Alert or StarCraft, where you can absolutely blitz kill enemies if you, if you get the drop on someone, basically. The other thing is these myth units that you love to pieces, James, I'm a lot less uh, interested in as gameplay pieces. So the myth units, pretty much all the myth units, I don't know if there's any exceptions, but all the myth units have special abilities. And the way those abilities work is that they're on a cooldown. And when they're off cooldown, if you're in the range of the enemy to use that special power, they automatically get used. So it's not an activated ability where you select your myth unit and activate the power. It's something that automatically gets used when that unit uh, in comes into the engagement range that their special ability allows. So these two things, the fact that units kind of have half HP and kind of hack at one another for a while before damage gets done, and the fact that there are no activated abilities on any of the units made a lot of these combat engagements far less interesting for me than the micro-heavy Warcraft 3 or the lethal, fast, frantic combat of something like Red Alert or StarCraft. Um, so you say that they don't have actives, but that kind of implies that you're saying you don't have control over when they use their abilities, which I disagree with. Like, oftentimes I would hold, like, my Gorgons back so that I could run them in against specific units and control when they, you know, did their petrification. Mm -hmm. I think you can control it with a bit of work. Um, and it's like, I actually find it less fiddly um, than having hotkeys buttons on individual units just because, like, you're controlling the units that way anyway. Like, it means that the focus is on, like, um, control groups and selecting targets and not, like, micro like tabbing through each unit. Because you can actually, like, I don't know if in other RTSs you have to, like, tab through each unit and activate the abilities manually um, compared to this where you can, like, have a group and if you want all of them to use their ability, you just send them all in at once. Uh, so the way it works is that if you have units of this in the same control group of the same ability, when you use that ability, it'll use it on one of the units and then the other yeah. units will will not have used the ability until you use it again. So if you have three High Templars in a control group and you use a Storm, you won't drop three Storms in the same place, you'll drop a single Storm, and then you have to press it again to drop another Storm. So Yeah, so I, I don't mind it as much as you, as you I, guessed. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. You can still micro these units um, because you can just kind of keep them out of the engagement range by moving them away and then moving them in when you want to. So absolutely, if you're a skilled player and can do this, um, and you clearly seem to have been able to do it well done, for me, I would infinitely prefer being able to control when it goes off. So have my units just attack normally within their normal attack range, and then decide, oh, I want to use this unit to use that special ability on this enemy unit. It would feel like it gave me a lot of control. Uh, with how a lot of these fights were going, a lot of the time, my myth units were just using their special abilities off cooldown because I wasn't microing my seven myth units anywhere near that well. A lot of the time, my strategy was very heavy on archers with the myth units being the frontline tanks. 
which also yeah. uh, mitigated my ability to use their special abilities because they were the frontline ones. It was not as viable to move them away from the front lines and use those abilities. To me, I mean, listen, you raise a good point. If you didn't have a problem with this, I understand because it's definitely microable, but it felt like it was taking control away from me as a player. And I like using my unit's abilities and having control over that. And I didn't feel when I was playing this game that I did have control over yeah that's fair enough um i do think there's enough variety in these units that it makes it really fun still like to me this is the thing i always liked about the game the most is these units um one of the things that i always thought was really cool was that in game um there's basically like an encyclopedia um, that explains how each each unit fits into their respective mythology and I reckon as a kid, I learned like 80% of what I know about like <laughs> these mythologies from playing this game, funnily enough. That's actually quite cool. And then looking it up on Wikipedia after thinking that the things I was reading was cool. Yeah, I, I guess the thing is when I just think of the caster units in StarCraft and Warcraft, when I think of using them, I it feels a lot more fun to me. Like when I have a sorceress in Warcraft 3, and I have the slow spell and the polymorph spell, and I get to choose when to use it, it just feels a lot more tactile and enjoyable. And I would much rather play play a combat scenario using my sorceress targeting things than I would, you know, send my three sphinxes into melee combat. And I think that they a lot of the time they fulfill the same role, but to me, one of those things is way more fun than the others. So that that's really what I'm trying to get at. Having control over your units makes them more fun to use to me. See, I'm lazy, right? So I like the fact that I don't have to click so many buttons. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> well, that, that kind of feeds into my other point. How do you feel about the pace of these combat, that these combats are more skirmishy than, I guess, ending very rapidly? Uh, I think it's good because it lets you go back to your base and click out the villages that you've been building during the combat. It doesn't mean you lose the battle by going back to base for a second. If right, so not... it's, it's easier to macro. Yeah, basically. Um, and I think that this game has a big focus on macro with its additional resources. So to me, as a design decision, this makes a lot of sense. Like if they're going to have all these extra resources have this focus on you building tons and tons of workers and expanding and looking for things on the map um, that battles aren't over instantly. Um, Actually, you raise a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. Definitely, I've spent a long time talking about how the economy is so important. So it being easier to macro with less of a focus on the micro of your units does make sense. Like uh, they want to have more skirmishy things in you building up your economy appropriately. Perhaps my problem with it is that a lot of the time, my late game combats, and we've kind of alluded to this before, are building up an overwhelming force. And using an overwhelming force to crush your enemy can be fun once or twice, but then it kind of gets very repetitive and boring because I think my army compositions were almost always the same, which is myth units on the front lines, a shitload of archers, and anywhere between five and seven siege units to take out towers and buildings. Yeah. Um, and because of that, the way that my battles flowed were the same pretty much every time. You know, we'd be just gradually advancing on the enemy using my catapults to take out their buildings and protecting, basically playing protect the catapult 
uh, and wiping out their armies along the way. It was interesting to me playing the Atlantean missions. I think during the campaign, what the enemy tends to do is to build like two or three specific units. And then what you can do is you can build the counter units and win the mission that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I found in the Atlantean missions, like the enemy would send all of these spearmen at me and I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll build like archers. And then the next wave would be cavalry and I'd be screwed hmm. and have to restart. I felt like it did a better job of like adapting to what you were building compared to um, during the main campaign, which I think kind of uh would make these battles more interesting because you when you have a balanced army in the single player it means you have to like prioritize certain units with your certain control groups better how did you feel about that rock paper scissors nature of the combat so it sounds like you leaned into that a lot more heavily than i did it's fun when you have to micromanage it and use the right unit on the right unit i think so but we should we should probably explain it, right? So the idea is that there are different armor types and there are different attack types. And this is a this is a staple of RTS games. It was it's a thing in Warcraft. It was even a thing in StarCraft One. I, I don't although not quite to the same degree, I don't know if it's still in StarCraft Two. But basically, uh different damage types are stronger against different armor types. Uh so your spearmen are gonna be better against cavalry, your archers are gonna be better against infantry. And you have myth units which are good against everything except heroes, uh, with some myth units being particularly good against building as well. Do you feel it hit a good balance here, James? Because to me, the myth units definitely upset a lot of the potential balance here, at least in single player. Uh, I think it did more so in like the Greek and the Egyptian campaign. I think the Norse and the Atlanteans have a much higher access to myth units. Um, which makes it just feel like another piece of the rock, paper, scissors. I don't necessarily mind that it's like they're stronger, you know, like norm. Yeah. Normally in rock, paper, scissors, all three options are equal and it's about picking the right one. But here there's like a fourth cog and that fourth cog is actually stronger than the other three because it's like, you know, the main point of the whole game, I guess. Mm. Yeah, so them being a bit stronger to encourage you to do them and do the fun thing is not the worst idea in the world. I can get behind that. Yeah, um, and I, I kind of liked how each of the factions built like their rock, paper, scissors differently. Like the Egyptians only had counter units, basically, whereas the Greeks had lots of generalist units, which were good in all situations, and they were less rock, paper, scissory. Yeah, and the Norse were very good at dealing with... Um, myth units but i think uh, but they had fewer options for basic infantry right yeah but the options were good they could yeah their their infantry just felt stronger and you just naturally had a larger army because your builders were throwing axe guys so you you kind of just naturally had a bigger standing military um the other thing i want to ask you about is the power of siege weapons in this game uh, at one point, James, I tried to take down an enemy Migdol stronghold with, I think it was about 30 chariot archers. And I think the Migdol stronghold. I think, I think they won. take like no damage from. Yeah. Those. I was like, what is even happening? Because I was like, oh, it's like three quarters health. These guys can just finish it off. I, I look back over like and half of them were dead. Be fine, maybe. Yeah. So after that point i was like i just need siege weapons like it's impossible to advance without it and the nature of the campaign is that 
a lot of the time you're advancing into enemy territory and you must destroy enemy buildings. Do you think that siege weapons, I guess, being as good as they are and essential as they are against buildings is a good thing? Or do you think the balance is just a bit too far in that direction? No, I liked it. I think it gives a bit of tactical depth because you really, like, your siege weapons are quite vulnerable. Um, so, you know, you can get behind the enemy line with cavalry. So you kind of, like, need to position some spear units near them to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. um, I found, like, a lot of positioning stuff arose from the fact that these siege units were, like, slow and vulnerable, but super worth building. Um, yeah, it's, it's just very different because uh, Warcraft 3 is a bit closer to this, but definitely in StarCraft and the Red Alert games, if you have an army and your opponent doesn't and they've got 40 defensive buildings, it literally doesn't matter. You just you have an army and they don't, so you just run them over. So yeah, it took yeah, me, towers and walls are pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it took me a little while to adapt to this idea that towers and walls and defensive structures were good. Um, Migdols are also funny. They're the um, they're the like the end the game unit production big, structure. Yeah, big barracks that are also super towers. Yeah, so I would build them as towers. Yeah, because their walls and towers combined because they take up a lot of room. Yeah, so forward I'd build bases. Like, yeah, I'd build like three of them and be like, "Good luck!" And the enemy would all attack underneath all of these towers that have just a million HP. Um, yeah, so it, it was just a. I don't think this is a good or bad thing for what it's worth. It was just an interesting quirk that took me. Took me a while to get get to grips with that uh, towers and walls are good. Did you have a favorite god power? Um, I mean, I know it's probably kind of boring, but I liked meteor. Yeah, like, it's meteor, I, right? Um, it's so meteor, cool. I also liked underworld passage, the Hades power that let you just create two oh, points awesome. to move people between. There's a mission that utilized this really well, where your you had two bases that were split, and you created this passage, and you could just have one army that was moving between it instead of one um i feel like a lot of the god powers are like very weak though particularly those first couple of tiers and the fact that you can only use them once just felt very it felt bad in single player what's a weak one i, I guess stuff like there's one that gives vision i think and powers up myth units for a short time uh which isn't like it isn't isn't like weak and it's not weak in the context of multiplayer but if you're defending an attack on your base and you use a power to to power up your guys to fend off an attack and mm. that power is gone for the rest of the mission it doesn't feel great you know you're like oh, okay well that's gone forever now so a lot of the time i they don't, they don't I feel would... impactful because it regardless of whether you win the fight or lose like you're just like i'm gonna build more economy and then win anyway regardless of how this goes I well guess. a lot a lot of the time i would also just try and hold off using them you know to use them for the perfect moment but then mm. i would be too strong anyway and i wouldn't need to use them to gain an edge i think that I prefer the idea of reusable powers, which I think is what the Atlanteans get, even if they if even if they're on a long cooldown, because it would feel more freeing to actually use them and I'd feel very incentivized to use them a lot more. Because I'd know that if I drop this early, I'm gonna get another opportunity to play with these fun powers later. It's it's the same reason why I guess you said that it's kind of okay that myth units are a bit stronger because they're fun to use. To me, it would have been okay to have these powers be a bit too strong in single player and let you, I guess, keep playing with them. 
then just yeah. get a one-off and then you can't use them anymore. I think it's good to have a balance. Like, I think some gods should have single-use powers that are super, like, like Underworld's Passage uh, doesn't really need multiple yeah. charges, right? So, so maybe you have a, have a mix of both. You have some god powers which you use once, but you can also sprinkle in weaker ones that are on, like, a five-minute cooldown. Like, Meteor probably should still only be once, yes. honestly, but some... Yeah. Maybe you get two lightning bolts or something. Yeah, sure. I, I, th I think it's probably a mistake that, like, it's Atlantean's gimmick and not just it's a thing across all of the gods, like, on certain specific abilities. There's multiple powers that, like, summon temporary forces to assist you. I just use them early to, um, to I guess, help me bridge my economy gap and then they'd be gone and i mean isis's entire thing is using ancestors and eclipse at the same time for super fast attacking zombies just mm -hmm. wins right. your fight yeah yeah i don't think i ever did that yeah it's like the main thing you'd like the players do online with that character but i normally just blew them whenever uh as well especially stuff like like bronze and the healing one yeah that... so I, I see what you're saying for sure some of the god powers are very cool um i just wish that there was more diversity with them in terms of some being on cooldown and some um so there was one other really big topic i wanted to talk about james it's the ui and the ease of control and i'll just say it straight out of the gates i think that age of mythology is really really strong in this regard uh if you look at rts's um up to starcraft 2 including warcraft 3 there are a whole bunch of things that get in the way of the ease at which you control your economy your army and your buildings um warcraft 3 and starcraft 1 are famous for this uh they've got limited control groups you can only have 12 units in a control group regardless of what the unit is starcraft 1 has a lot of awkward things with its pathfinding with the fact that you can't uh, set rallies for workers and attacking units, for the fact that uh, you can't target a resource with your uh, rally thing, so they won't start auto-gathering. Uh, not only does Age of Mythology not suffer from any of these problems, it also has far better pathfinding, and it even has automatic unit formation. So your archers will be at the back and they'll be in a nice little arc when you decide to attack something instead of stumbling over one another. I just want to say Age of Mythology, the way it controls is incredibly user-friendly and I didn't have any problems whatsoever. Well, one problem I'll get to in a sec, but apart from one problem, it was very easy to control my armies. Yeah, I agree. Um, once I set up hotkeys, everything was super easy to control. Uh, Definitely my favorite feature in the entire game is auto-queuing units because uh, you put villagers on auto-queue and you never look back. Um, the only thing I really didn't like was that you can't change key bindings mm. while in a match. Um, you have to like exit, go back to the main menu, change the key bindings, then go back into the game, which like feels really bad because you, like, you really want to test how it feels to use each key bind like after you set it so you kind of keep needing to go in and out of skirmish in order to do it which was a bit annoying but uh other than that like by the end of the game i was like starting every mission by mashing h and then yeah and it's the got um <laughs> it's got uh something that lets you know if you have any idle villages that you can key between it's got idle hero banner as well um so it's got all these different tools to assist the player i guess to make their macro easier 
Uh, that being said, there was ma one massive issue I had. I don't know if this is just a thing that is just accepted, but if you have a bunch of different move units with different move speeds in a control group, they will move at the speed of the slowest unit. And it is incredibly frustrating because a lot of the time you'll have one myth unit and the myth unit will be a big, slow, lumbering cyclops and your entire army will move at the pace of that cyclops. Did this frustrate you, James? Like, eventually, I just had to get good at getting different control groups for different groups moving at different speeds. Uh, I just dealt with it okay, yeah. in the same the, group. I hated it so much. The, the other thing is that there's a mechanic in this game, which is that when a unit is engaged in combat, it moves a lot slower. And the reason for this is to discourage retreating. So you can't just use like a melee unit to kite enemies, which is which is a fine thing. Like, I don't think that's a bad thing. The problem is if that unit is in a control group with a bunch of other spearmen, now they're all moving at the speed of the slower spearmen. So I don't I don't know if this is an intentional thing to make it harder. So it makes it very hard to be moving in and out of combat with and listen, this might be intentional. It might be that they didn't want to have that kind of more micro heavy kind of style where you're moving in and out while in combat but for me it was pretty frustrating i i i like like it's a good thing that this kind of uh unified move speed uh reduces a lot of the pathfinding issues and in, in units getting stuck on other units as they're trying to move past one another but it does come at the cost of making your armies move frustratingly slowly at times which uh annoyed the crap out of me <laughs> yeah i really like some of the features like when you're placing buildings down if you hold shift and mash click it like they'll just automatically do it yeah if you build if you build a gold mine or a lumber camp your villager after they've built it will automatically start gathering that resource you don't need to execute another command all of these things seem small and they are small but cohesively it just makes it so much more friendly to the player Playing StarCraft 1, which I did recently um, for the Nostalgia Goggles podcast, which I'll pop a link to because I think it does provide a very... Even though they're both RTS games, they're both so different in all the ways that matters. StarCraft 1 is like a micromanaging nightmare. Like the macro of that game is very important, but the way you have to micro just to get an army out and then move that army across to the other side of the map is so difficult. In Age of Mythology, it really takes the pressure off you and lets you focus more on the macro stuff that matters. And it makes it just a far gentler learning experience as well. So I found Age of Mythology a real joy to control. And I, I think it's even easier to control than Warcraft 3. Um, nothing is quite on StarCraft 2, StarCraft 2's level in terms of the ease at which units move. But this is, this is close. This isn't too far mm, off. I agree. It felt so familiar to me that it's like it's like hard to notice that kind of thing. Like everything controls as I expected it to. I like snapping buildings next to each other, like building houses and circles around towers and that kind of thing. It just feels very nice. Yeah, it's worth noting that the buildings will build very close to one another, particularly with houses. You, you never really get that feeling of like, you can't build here, you can't build here, you can't build here. You can just drop down your buildings anywhere. It, it doesn't feel like it's on a very rigid tile. Obviously, it's still tile-based, but it's a very um, delineated one. So you have a lot of freedom with just chucking your buildings yeah. anywhere. Um, listen, James, I think we've covered most of what I want to cover. Did you have any other notes? Uh, no, that's about it. I think you've brought up basically everything that's like 
good to talk about. So we'll just jump into final impressions then. Yeah, uh, you take us away, James. All right. Well, this one's easy. I love this game to bits. Um, you know, I, I think I've tried to criticize this one more than, you know, I was go I would have otherwise uh, because of how nostalgic I am for it. But like, I really, really like this one. I love the mission design. I love like the idea of the god powers and, um, you know, the myth units. And I love the voice acting, the music. Um, and I even like the way the game looks. Uh, I'm very, very biased towards this one, but I think it's a really great game to play. Um, the game doesn't like waste your time. Every mission is super unique um, and worth playing on its own generally. Um, I think the factions are all diverse. There is still a multiplayer scene active for this game currently. Um, I think it received a patch like either last year or this year. Not very often, but you know, just enough to keep it going. And there is a remake coming out uh, that was announced and we have no trailer for it other than the announcement. So super excited for that. Uh, I think this is an easy recommend for me. I think, you know, everyone I know personally that has spoken about this game says they love it. Um, it's, I don't think it's as good as Warcraft 3, but, you know, it comes pretty close in some ways. And what yeah, is? that's a very, very high bar to begin with. Um, I also recommend Age of Mythology. I actually had a lot of fun with this one, and I do have some problems with it, but even the problems I have with it are not like deal breakers or things that are like extremely bad. They're just kind of like average. Like, I think that the story here is pretty average and acceptable. I think the way that the combat actually flows is average and acceptable. I think that the focus on building up a late game force does get a little repetitive, particularly in the middle. But solving the economic puzzle, the diversity in factions, the ease of which you control things, and the learning of how to use each faction uh, with some very tough missions that kicked my ass a few times before I came to grips with them were really enjoyable. I had a really fun time playing through this campaign, and I'm, I'm glad I picked this one. It's given me another another like perspective on the broader RTS puzzle. I am interested to see what rts games have that have come out in recent years that i've missed uh because really most of my experience and knowledge comes from this era spanning from the late 90s to the to there the aren't any existence of starcraft <laughs> 2 i think i think they exist like i know that uh like we did homeworld there's like a more uh there's homeworld deserts of Karak. i think there's a new one coming out actually like very soon or just came out yeah well deserts of Karak is more of a traditional well i think you're still on a journey but it's you know on the ground instead of being in the space yeah, homeworld 3 comes out next february oh cool um and then there's uh there's stormgate which is uh being pitched as a starcraft 2 killer i mean we'll see how that goes but that's probably the next big one on the horizon but i'm sure there have been other ones that have come out you know particularly with the indie scene that i'd be interested in hearing about if they've eclipsed any of these old games i know spell force is another one while we were playing this i actually bought uh spell force 3 because i know that people say it's kind of got little bits in common but you know overall james i had a really good time with age of mythology i do think that um it comes across as a little blander than maybe your memory remembers it as uh but the core here is just so strong like it, it's just a really pleasant game to play with some really good uh core mechanics and it makes sense considering Ensemble Studios had been refining the Age of Empire games before this. So they've just brought that nice, nice core uh, RTS stuff to the table and then built on it in interesting ways. 
I'm so excited for the remake. I hope they... Uh... Why are they remaking it again and not making a sequel? I wonder if they'll add more, like, mythologies. But the thing is, I thought the extended edition came out not too long ago, so I'm Can't... surprised they're also remaking it. Can't wait to summon Jesus on my planet. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. <laughs> he can, when, you, when you have Jesus, one of your heroes, he can walk on water. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> walk... <laughs> uh... Do you remember that game, that, that fighting game that got, I think got Steam banned in like Malaysia or something temporarily? <laughs> no, like, I do not. Was that yeah, Jesus, one of the playable characters? Yeah, Jesus was a playable character and in the trailer, like it revealed him, it was like, Jesus is back and he's cross. <laughs> <laughs> he's cross. <laughs> so bad yeah maybe i i'm i'm somehow skeptical that uh a big a big company is going to risk that <laughs> mostly i think uh the four that are in the game currently are the most interesting like of the big mythologies but you know i mean even even just roman although the romans ripped off the greek gods i mean they've still got their own spin on it right yeah, it'd be very similar. You've got uh, Celtic gods. That's a pretty good one. Honestly, uh, Aboriginal gods would be a pretty sweet one, like if there was an Australian faction. Mm. Um, Aboriginal mythology is pretty sweet and interesting. Yeah, and then, like, I guess, yeah, the, all those European ones as well. Um, yeah, you know, Native American. There's actually, I mean, there's so much cool mythology out there. Um, but yeah, that about does it. Um, so thank you everyone for listening to us talk about Age of Mythology. Uh, James and I are the Retrospectors podcast. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got links to all of our content, a bunch of articles we've written, as well as two very special things. The first is our Buy Me A Coffee page. If you've enjoyed the show and have been enjoying the show and want to support the show monetarily, we have a Buy Me A Coffee page where you can give us a one-off donation or a repeating donation a la Patreon. Um, we've also got links to our Discord server there. Our Discord server is where we do all of our community interaction. We're also on Twitter and other places, but Discord is the place to be because we can actually have a conversation and argue with one another in a more substantive way than the other social media services allow. So if you're enjoying the show, want to give us a recommendation, want to give us an opinion, um, we would love to hear from you. We'd love if you would join our Discord Honestly, server. our Discord is mostly people threatening Patrick with more JRPGs. <laughs> it is it is remarkable <laughs> how many people seem to enjoy the fact that I do not like JRPGs at all. And actually, recently, we've been discussing us doing one this year. Hey, James. Yeah, I think we should do um, another one sometime this year. And we definitely have one in mind. Yeah, so the one, the one we have in mind is Final Fantasy VII. And... Honestly, on the face of it, listen, I don't know a whole lot about this game, uh, but on the face of it, it looks pretty interesting to me. Like, you play as eco-terrorists, you're not the chosen one trying to save the world, but who knows, by the end of the story, that may very well change. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing JRPGs. <laughs> but I, listen, I know everyone enjoys having me suffer, but it's not that I want to hate JRPGs, it's just JRPGs are terrible. So if people can show me a good one, I'm more than willing to approach it with an open mind. It's just, it will still be my mind regardless. So mm. I, I am keen to give another one a try. Um, and I think giving one a try that is a bit different from the traditional SNES JRPG mold is probably the best way to maybe get me on board. Yeah, so um, we're coming up to the end of the year now, so which means it's time for Mailbag episode, yes. right, Pat? Mailbag is our, I love doing our mailbag episodes. So a while ago, we decided we were trying to figure out what the best way to 
you know, have these questions from the community was. And the way that we do it on this show is that once a year, we have a dedicated mailbag episode where we take questions from our listeners and talk about it for three hours, basically just answering every single question thrown our way. Um, we can take these questions on Twitter, but most people are asking on our Discord server. So just wanted to add an additional shout out. If you have any questions about anything gaming related, please join our Discord server, send us a tweet. Um, we would love to answer your questions. And it's such a cozy episode for us. We always release it around Christmas. It's nice to have a break and just uh, chill down and interact with the community. Um, and talk about, you know, the games we've been playing outside of the retro side of things. Yeah, because, you know, part of this show is, you know, it's comparing old games to modern games. So James and I also play a lot of modern games, which serve as our comparison points for what we consider good video games to be. So it's nice to change things up a bit. And it's nice to interact with you guys. Like, you, you're the reason we do this podcast. It's nice having an audience to speak to, one that listens to us. So we love to pay it back by uh, answering and communicating with you directly. So please, we'll be doing it in a couple of weeks' time around Christmas. So if you've got anything you want to know, please do drop us a line. Yeah, I really like the mailback episodes, especially because I get to play the game of my choice <laughs> behind the <laughs> scenes instead of being in, instead of being in retro gaming jail right james <laughs> <laughs> um but that about sums it up so thank you for listening to us and we'll see you in a couple of weeks for our mailbag episode see you then